Hi, I'm James Gardner, host of Your History, Your Story, a podcast for everybody who loves stories about interesting people and events told by those who uncovered them from within their own family trees. This, we hope, will inspire you to discover and celebrate your history and your story. In this episode, we will be speaking with award-winning author, adjunct professor of history, and presidential historian, Louis Pacone. Lewis, whose early interest in history was fostered by his parents through road trips to historic places, continued that tradition with his own children, often visiting the birthplaces of U.S. presidents. As a result of those visits, Lewis began to develop a fascination with the lives and times of our nation's commanders-in-chief, which led him to become a teacher and writer of presidential history. I'd now like to welcome Lewis Pacone to our show. Welcome, Lewis. Thank you, James. Thanks for having me. Well, we're really glad to have you on our show because I'll tell you what, Lewis, I've mentioned this before, I think, on some of my other podcasts, but I am a, a huge history buff and particularly a presidential history buff. Since I was a little kid, I've been fascinated with the topic. And when I found out about you and the work that you do and the books that you've written, you've become my idol. Yeah. Well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I've got to tell my children that. <laughs> and also you're a New Jersey guy. So that's a good thing too. I am. Yep. Yeah. So Lewis, I'd like to start off by asking you, where were you born and raised and what are your family roots? I was born in the Bronx. So I was born just a couple miles as the crow flies from Grant's tomb, but I was raised in New Jersey. I spent uh, ever since I was two and a half uh, I've been in New Jersey, and I bounced around several different areas of New Jersey, Hamilton Square, which is outside of Trenton, and then North Jersey, a couple different places, and I've been in Roxbury, New Jersey, for the last 20 years or so. Okay, so you really are more of a New Jersey guy than a New York guy. Absolutely. Great. Do you know anything about your family roots? Like, when did your extended family come here? Grandparents, great-grandparents? That's a good question. I've actually done some uh, some genealogical research. I'm kind of like the family historian. So I know that my uh, that my grandfather came over from Italy in 1928. He was 16 years old. So he was the last one of my relatives to come over from Italy. Oh, OK. Did he come yep. through Ellis Island? He didn't come through Ellis Island. He came in. His father was here first. So he was able to come in and didn't have to go through Ellis Island. Got it. And any other family uh, roots that you've looked into? Yeah, no, I have. Uh, I mean, all of my family comes from Italy. It comes from uh, between pretty much from Naples on my father's side and Calabria on my mother's side. And they all kind of took the standard path for Italians in the early part of the 1900s where they came into New York City. They ended up branching out from New York City and they went to the Bronx, which was kind of like the suburbs or like the farm area back then. My dad says he remembers seeing farms when he was younger and open land, which you don't really see as much now. And then in the 70s, they ended up moving out to New Jersey. So it's interesting how many people that I've met that even my wife has a very similar history with her family. Uh, there's a lot of people I've spoken with who have similar stories. and It's very fascinating. But it seems that most families seem to have a family historian. There's always somebody in the family who maybe has all the photographs or mm -hmm. remembers what grandpa used to say or what dad yeah. used to say. And 
while some people may not be interested over the years, all of a sudden people get interested, particularly a lot of people are looking into, you know, these online genealogical databases and they're all of a sudden getting curious and all of a sudden the family historian has become more popular. <laughs> yeah, I'm not quite there yet, but my primary source outside of the internet is my Aunt Josephine. So she's my father's sister, but she's the one that's the big collector of the information and she's like kind of like my go-to source for family history. But also, yeah, the internet's fantastic. But one thing about my last name, Pacone, is that it's very popular. Uh, and the Pacone side is from Naples, so a very populous city. So it makes it more difficult to track that side. Uh, even though you can find everything on the internet, there's stuff that my Aunt Josephine has that you can't find on the internet. So she's my best source. Yes, I got to tell everybody out there to look for that Aunt Josephine in your family. Exactly. Everyone's got one that's eager to share that information. <laughs> <laughs> Take the time to ask, right? But... So let's talk about your interest in history. I know that you are a author of presidential history. You love the topic. How did you first fall in love with history? And what was that story, Lewis? You know, I've always enjoyed history. My parents always used to throw in some historic sites on our road trips. Like I remember when we were younger, they took us to Gettysburg on the way to some amusement park. And uh, when we went to Florida, they brought us to St. Augustine. So we needed to see the historic city before they'd bring us to Disney World. So I like to think that they planted the seeds of a very, very slow growing tree. <laughs> I mean, I've always liked history. I've always liked sports history. But the presidential history, that's something that was more recent in my life. I mean, sometimes I even try to figure out, like, how did I get here? And I always like to think, if Lewis today met Lewis from like 20 years ago, we wouldn't even recognize the guy. <laughs> it's like, why do you know so much about the presidents? So for me, getting into presidential history, I even try to wonder myself, like, how did I get here? When I started to have children, I used to enjoy taking my children and bringing my parents on road trips. It was something I was kind of like running out of gifts to get my parents. So every like anniversary and birthday, we'd load up the minivan and I'd bring their grandchildren and I'd take them on road trips. And we started to, on the road trips, we'd go to amusement parks and we'd go to restaurants kind of, and baseball games for the kids. But also we'd go to national park sites and historic sites because that's something they always brought me to. At some point I started to realize that I've been to a bunch of presidential birthplaces and wouldn't it be interesting to try to go to more presidential birthplaces? Just from researching the ones that I'd been to, I'd found that they kind of have like real interesting, quirky stories because presidential birthplaces are like no other sites because nobody really cares about a birthplace until the individual becomes president. So now it's like 50, 60 years later, people are going back and trying to find Lincoln's log cabin or trying to find the site where George Washington was born. And a lot of time these sites are long gone by this point. So there's this whole process of like recreating history. Uh, and rebuilding the homes, or sometimes someone, someone lives in the home because it's still a home. So there was a road trip that we took out to Louisville, Kentucky. We actually went to a Beatles festival. So I was trying to bring my son up on good music. And along the way, we went through Ohio. So I realized, hey, there's seven presidents born in Ohio. Wouldn't it be fun to kind of like play connect the dots on the way to Louisville? And then after going to the Beatles festival, we went to Abraham Lincoln's birthplace. And I'm expecting to see this small little log cabin. And when you pull up there, you see this massive neoclassical structure that looked like it was dropped from 
from Rome or from Greece and just placed in the foothills of Kentucky. And I think in retrospect, that's when the light bulb went off. Like, wouldn't it be a great book just to write about the presidential birthplaces? Because they're all so interesting in their own way. It just quickly turned into an interest, into an obsession. And I just, I haven't gotten out of it yet. I just keep almost waiting for this fad to end or whatever, this phase to end. Uh, but the, it's just the more that I learn about the presidents and the presidency, it just ends up wanting to learn more about United States history because they're all kind of infused together. And uh, it's just, it's a bottomless pit, really. But that's kind of where it started, long answer of where it started for me. How was everybody with all those stops that you had to make? My parents are great. My children, sometimes you have to bribe them. Like, <laughs> like after this, we're going to get a happy meal. Uh, <laughs> but the older they get, the less that works. And it was funny. We were on a road trip several years ago. And it was my wife and my kids. And we were in Tennessee. We got to James K. Polk's house in Tennessee, and they just mutinied on me. That was it. No more presidents. That enough. <laughs> they would not get out of the car. <laughs> like I got them in the home, but that was it. Ever since then, it's it's a struggle sometimes. <laughs> were they going to set you adrift? Yeah, that's what they were. They were going to make me walk the plank. <laughs> <laughs> that is so cool. Now let me talk about your uh, education. So. Did you like history in school? You know, I did like history, but it's funny. I was actually asked to go speak at my high school a couple of years ago to come back for career day and talk about being an historian. And I looked back on my history grades and they weren't anything to brag about. I won't, uh, I won't reveal what they were, but I did enjoy history in high school and in college. I remember I took a class on Martin Luther King history and I took World War II history in school. And I remember those classes vividly. But it wasn't until later in life that I really found the passion uh, for history that I have now. So you mentioned your parents used to take you to historical places as a kid. Did you have any mentors or anybody other than your parents who kind of fostered your interest in history and helped you increase your interest or point you in different areas of history to expose you to them? You know, I did. After I started to write, I went back to William Patterson University to get my master's in history. So at William Patterson, I met some extraordinary professors there that really helped me focus my interest in history. So really some terrific professors there. And then after that, they asked me if I'd adjunct. So uh, I've been teaching history there for the last two or three years as well. And I can tell you, I learned a lot from the students too, because they have such varied entry points into their interests of history. Really. I end up learning from them, hopefully, as much as they learn from me. That's great. So the education continues for you. It does. Yeah. Lewis, let's talk about your writing. It's one thing to be a historian, but it's another thing to be an author and a historian, right? Because Correct. you may love history, you may love learning about history, but the other thing is, how do you write history? What to you is the most important thing about writing in order to convey history to people? Hmm. Interesting. One, I think to be a good writer, you need to read a lot. And the books that are in your lane, uh, kind of like what you want to write about, if they're similar books, even if, if I'm writing about different historic locations, I might read books on other historic locations that are unrelated to the presidency. 
just to get a feel for how others have written about similar topics. I even think there's a lot of value in reading bad books, in reading poorly written books, because a lot of times I'll learn just as much from them, not to disparage any authors, and I wouldn't name any, but I've read some books that I just felt were poorly written, but I ended up learning a lot from those books too about how not to write. And honestly, every book, even if they're poorly written, there's always some good nuggets in there too that you can take away. But I mean, for the writing and the researching process, for me, is just finding the right topic that you're passionate about, because you're going to be spending a lot of time with your topic. I mean, for me, my area of interest has been places, presidential places. So my three books, that's kind of been like the common thread going through the three books. So it's not just research and writing, but it's traveling a lot too. So find something that you're passionate about, because again, you're going to be spending a lot of hours working on a book. I guess the side benefit of that is that you get to immerse yourself in some interesting stuff as well. So you're not only researching for a book for others to enjoy, but you're also enjoying the process, I would imagine. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's funny. I was just telling someone today that I almost feel a little sense of sadness when a book is done because I know that I can't research and write it anymore. I mean, and even after the book is done, if I find something interesting about Grant's tomb, I put it to the side anyway. I mean, maybe there'll be another edition, but even if not, I just like, almost like you can't let go of it because, or at least for me, because I've enjoyed writing it so much. Definitely. Now, I think this is time to bring up your books, three books, correct? Correct. You've, You've authored at this point. And I'd like to just go through those three books and just ask you, basically, sometimes the title is sort of self-evident as far as what Mm -hmm. the book is about, but maybe something about what inspired you to write the book. And maybe a little tidbit as as far as a summary for anybody who might be interested in picking it up. Sure. Okay. I'll start with the first book, Where the Presidents Were Born, The History and Preservation of the Presidential Birthplaces. Mm -hmm. So that one I started to talk about before, about where the genesis for that book came from. But honestly, when I started to write it, I started to find some real fascinating stories. I'd been to Washington's birthplace, and I'd done research on that, and I just found this fascinating story about around the time of the bicentennial for George Washington. So that was almost as big as the bicentennial in 1976, but the bicentennial of his birth in 1932 there was just this nationwide celebration of all things Washington. There was individuals who had recreated the birthplace of George Washington, but they really didn't have much to go on. Uh, So they had built this home. It turns out just a couple years later, they were doing archeological research and they were digging a couple hundred feet away from the birthplace home that was billed as the actual birthplace and the actual location. So a couple years later, they were doing this archeological dig and they found the birthplace of George Washington. So one, they realized that the birthplace that everyone was coming to see wasn't at the right location. And then they realized from the footprint that it didn't look the same either. But what uh, ended up was done under the National Park Service, they just ended up literally and figuratively burying the evidence. And it wasn't until like 30 some years later that they ended up going public with the fact that the George Washington birthplace that everyone's been visiting for the last 30 years isn't really the George Washington birthplace. So when I started writing the book, that was one of the first birthplaces that I'd been to. And just from going there, I wanted to learn more. And that's kind of where I got the full story that you don't get when you go to actually see the site. 
and it kind of became this hobby and I started writing. But first, I wasn't convinced that there would be interesting stories for many of the presidential birthplaces. So I started writing. I wasn't convinced that it can turn into a book. And I didn't even really tell anyone that I was writing. I was probably writing for, for several months before I even told my wife that I was writing a book. Because I didn't want to tell people I was writing a book and then abandon it and then just have people ask me about it and uh, have to admit that I just abandoned it. But what I found is that so many of these birthplaces have these fascinating stories. So it took me about that Ohio road trip that I was talking about. That was 2008. And it took me about three or four years of writing before it actually became a book and was published in 2012. That sounds like an interesting book. And when you talked about George Washington's birthplace and the archaeological dig that uncovered the real birth. I mean, that stuff just fascinates me. It just sounds great. I really, really would love to read that book. And I think that's the next one on my list. Excellent. I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> I'm sure I will. The second one, this sounds really cool. This sounds weird, but it's cool. <laughs> the President is Dead, the Extraordinary Stories of the Presidential Deaths, Final Days, Burials, and Beyond. Tell us about that one, Lewis. Yeah. So after writing about the birthplaces, it definitely kind of seemed like a natural follow-up. And everyone kept asking me, oh, you're going to write about their graves next. You're going to write about their deaths next. I never set out to write the president is dead and to write about their deaths. But when I was doing research on the birthplaces, I'd find so many tidbits and fascinating stories, but they weren't about the birthplaces. They might be about Monticello, where Thomas Jefferson died and where he's buried. So I kind of filed them away. I'm like, oh, these are pretty interesting, but they're not really going to help me out right now. But you had the material to seed your second book. Yep. So one thing I found is that in writing both books is that the book that I set out to write from the onset was much different from the book that I had finally written uh, in the end. So for instance, with presidential birthplaces, I mentioned that I visited many of them with my family, with my children. And originally I thought it would be almost like an interesting travelogue to write about, to write about the birthplaces, but also write about my experiences visiting the birthplaces and, and my children not wanting to get out of the car or whatever. But what I'd found is that one, I didn't really have 44 or 45 wonderful stories about visiting the birthplaces, but also that the stories of the birthplaces, that's what was really fascinating because almost every one of them kind of had this interesting, quirky history, even if they were just signs on the side of the road, they had fascinating histories. And then for my second book, I had that same metamorphosis, where originally I was going to focus more on the places. I was going to write about all the graves of the presidents, and I was going to write about the places where they died. For instance, the hotel room in San Francisco where Warren G. Harding died, or the former site of the hotel where John Tyler died, that is now a parking garage in Richmond. I just thought they were pretty interesting histories too. And I did include that in the book. But what I found from researching about the deaths of the presidents is that they're fascinating stories about the president's final chapters. And included in those stories is just American history too. The history of funeral practices, the history of technology, the history of the funeral trains, the history of how we celebrate or how we memorialize the presidents in their deaths and then after their deaths with their public memorials, for instance, like Grant's tomb. So one way of comparing my first two books is where the presidents were born is more about the presidential places as well as the stories of the presidents, but maybe the places is paramount there. 
in the president is dead, it's more about the presidents themselves and the stories of the presidents themselves. And again, that final chapter of their lives and then the public memory and the places may be secondary there. But I think for me, just traveling to the places, traveling to the graves and again, those, those popular as well as obscure sites where the presidents had died and the funerals. To me, that's also just a fascinating topic too, because I know there's a lot of presidential historians, a lot of presidential enthusiasts that really get their interest in the presidents, like me, from traveling to the places, from standing there in the sites where history happened, like Grover Cleveland's birthplace in Caldwell. Just standing in that room where Grover Cleveland was born and where a young Grover Cleveland wandered around the home. To me, that's fascinating. So I do include that in the second book as well. But really, it's primarily about the presidents. That sounds so interesting. You know, Lewis, this is going to sound really weird when you hear this, but mm-hmm. regarding presidential deaths, two things. One is I had, when I was in my early 30s, I came down with a very, very serious throat infection and I was mm-hmm. hospitalized for four days. I was in intensive mm-hmm. care and it was diagnosed as epiglottitis. I was told that it was the same disease that George Washington likely died of. Mm-hmm. And well. it was really... I got a taste of what it was. Now, I had modern medicine, steroids that kept my throat from closing up. They were going to do a tracheotomy on me. It was a very serious freak sort of thing. Yeah. And I came out of the hospital after four days. But I kind of got an idea, perhaps, what George Washington was feeling with the almost like razor blades in my throat and not being able to breathe. Yeah. It was right before my youngest daughter was born. Here comes the weird part. When we found out my daughter was going to be a C-section, the doctor gave us three options for when the baby could be delivered. It was either December 13th, 14th, or 15th. (laughs) (laughs) I I said to my wife, I prefer the 14th because there's a historical significance to it. It was the day that George Washington died. So now all my listeners know that uh, how exactly interested I am in presidential history. Yeah. <laughs> well, talk about a strange gateway into presidential history. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, thank goodness that you got through that and not to make light of it, but thank goodness the doctors that you had didn't treat you the way that they treated George Washington. Oh, uh, kidding. Because they had taken over, uh, over two liters of blood from George Washington. They had bled him. And that's something that they did for almost every president on their deathbed through Zachary Taylor in 1850. That was really like the panacea for the day. And it's just astounding. He had four different individuals, three doctors and one person that just worked at Mount Vernon that really wasn't a trained doctor. But they all did the same thing and they all took blood from him. And uh, it's just astounding how much was taken from him. So I know when I was ill, I, I needed all my strength. The thoughts of having somebody, you know, letting blood. Didn't they also use purges and things like that? Yeah, purges, enemas, blistering, cupping. But yeah, it almost, I mean, it's amazing in some ways how little medicine progressed since the medieval times. And it's just pretty excruciating to see how some presidents were treated, including James Garfield. And that was 1881. But some of the treatment is almost like medieval. And the fact that that they weren't sterilizing their hands and sterilizing their equipment. As recent as 1881, when it was probably the medical care 
it was almost undoubtedly the medical care that killed James Garfield, not the bullet in his back, uh, which if they would have just left him alone, sent him back to the White House, go sleep it off, he most likely would have survived. I don't want to reveal too much about your book because I want people to get the book. Mm -hmm. But James Garfield, wasn't he actually examined or there was some involvement he had with Alexander Graham Bell? Can you tell us about that? Correct. Yeah. Uh, the doctors just became obsessed with finding the bullet. There was one doctor in particular that kind of almost commandeered care of James Garfield and really kind of squeezed out the other doctors. And he was just Dr. Bliss was his name. His actual name was Dr. Bliss. So he was a doctor. He was Dr. Willard Bliss. So he almost knew from the onset when this guy was born, it was a pretty strange life he was going to have. And his parents had kind of already planned his uh, destiny as a doctor. But he was just obsessed with finding the bullet and he was prodding and poking at James Garfield's back and end up it was infection that had killed him. But Alexander Graham Bell, and this was about five years after the telephone was invented, had tinkered around with what he called the induction balance. It was kind of like a primitive metal detector. He came to the White House on two different occasions to find the bullet. First time he was walking in there and almost had almost like on the steps of the White House, he was still tinkering with the invention, because it really wasn't ready for prime time yet. So he couldn't find anything. And then later on, he realized that he probably ended up screwing something up uh, in that last minute adjustment. The second time he was called back to the White House and the machine was just buzzing all over the place. It turns out that another, uh, another modern invention was kind of screwing up the results. And that was the metal coiled mattresses. Oh, no. uh, so it was invented right around the same time that James Garfield had died. And yeah, so the two different times that he came there, there was really no results. And the doctors continued to prod and poke and convinced that they, turns out they were looking on the wrong side of the body anyway, but they just ravaged James Garfield with infection. And then he became the first president to die in New Jersey. And to think that's 82 years after George Washington died and mm -hmm. George, George Washington was basically killed by those who were trying <laughs> to cure him. Yeah. And the same goes with James Garfield. Yeah. Lewis, your most recent book, Grant's Tomb, The Epic mm -hmm. Death of Ulysses S. Grant and the Making of an American Pantheon. This is the book that I have read recently, and it is fantastic. It is a great read. I couldn't stop listening to it. I got the audio version. It was really an in-depth, well-researched, well-written book. And I just thank you for writing it. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. thank you for your kind words. I appreciate it. Yeah. Tell us about what inspired you to write a book about Grant's tomb. And other than the obvious, what is it really about? Mm -hmm. Well, the one thing that I found, which really piqued my interest, is when I would talk to people about Grant's tomb, even people from New York City, where Grant's tomb is located, Almost inevitably, I'd say almost seven, eight times out of 10, all people knew about Grant's tomb was the line, well, who's buried in Grant's tomb? And the line comes from Groucho Marx, although what I found in my book is that Groucho Marx didn't invent it. I found it as far back as Shirley Temple had uttered the line 20, 30 years earlier. So Groucho had stolen the line. But it became so ingrained in people's consciousness that that's all they knew about Grant's tomb. And now, 70 years after Groucho Marx first uttered the line, what I found is that so many people don't even realize it's a Groucho Marx joke. 
they would ask me seriously, well, who's buried in Grant's tomb? Because they thought someone else was buried in Grant's tomb. <laughs> There's plenty of people from New York City that I know that didn't even realize that Grant's tomb was in New York City. So you have the fact that this tomb has basically been lost to public memory. Compare that to the fact that when Ulysses S. Grant died, he was probably the most popular man in America, if not the world. Because after he had been president, he spent two and a half years traveling the world. He was all through Europe. He went to Africa. He went all through Asia. Everywhere he went, he was treated as uh, almost like royalty, like a global celebrity. So when Grant died, he was perhaps the most popular man in the world. And the adoration was unparalleled. He was perhaps the one figure that was beloved by people both in the North and the South. Because he died 1885, 20 years after the Civil War, the country is still greatly divided. So he has the largest single funeral event in New York City up until that time in American history. It took 12 years to build, and, and the, it's a fascinating story about the building of Grant's tomb because it almost didn't happen. And it's a very dramatic story, and I just I was fascinated by the story of it. But Grant's tomb is the largest tomb in American history the largest tomb before or since. There's nothing like it. Bigger than Abraham Lincoln's tomb, bigger than James Garfield's tomb, bigger than any other tomb in North America in history. And it's been largely lost from public memory. So I kind of, I touched upon it in my second book, but I knew then that there's a lot more to this story. And another reason why I was so interested in it, because I mentioned that my parents took us to all these different historic sites. So the other fascinating part of the story for me is that, like I mentioned, I was born in New York City. I was born in the Bronx and really just a couple miles as the crow flies from Grant's tomb. And I'd mentioned when I was growing up, my parents would take us to different historic sites. But Grant's tomb was never a place that they would take us to. In the mid-70s, it was, quite frankly, a dangerous site. It was in Riverside Park. It still is in Riverside Park, but it was... Really, at that time, it was more popular with gang members and criminals and homeless and prostitutes and vandals than it was with tourists. Very few people were brave enough to go visit Grant's tomb during that time. And really, all of New York City was much more dangerous than it is now. Crime rates had risen. And that's one thing that I did in my book is that I kind of paralleled murder rates with visitation, how they would go uh, in opposite directions. As murder rates went up and it was almost like a perfect parallel, visitation rates would go down for obvious reasons. And Grant's tomb, located on the outskirts of Harlem, really suffered, the area suffered disproportionately to the rising crime rates and the rest of the city. And uh, so I just found that chapter of the story fascinating. For about 30 years, it was a site that not too many people went to. And you can see why it was really lost from public consciousness. Now, I'll also parallel the story of Grant's tomb, what I do in my book and what I just find fascinating, how much they kind of go in lockstep with each other is the popularity of Grant's tomb with Grant's reputation. I... Because Grant's reputation kind of went on this roller coaster ride too. When you uh, associate Grant's reputation with the rise of the lost cause ideology, that kind of reframed the Civil War as a righteous war fought by the South for the Southern way of life and for states' rights and really where it wasn't about slavery. As that ideology took hold first in the South and then really predominant throughout the country, 
Robert E. Lee's reputation goes up and Confederate monuments start to get built and Ulysses S. Grant's reputation goes down in opposing direction to at some point or by the mid 50s when uh, when Groucho Marx had uttered his joke and when you first start to read about reports of gang violence near Grant's tomb, Grant's reputation was really almost rock bottom by that point. And Harry Truman, who was president at the time, called him the worst president in American history. And it's just fascinating how Grant's reputation stays in the crater as Grant's tomb is too. You know, I went to Grant's tomb, I think in the late seventies, some of my friends and I were in the city and you were one of the brave ones. I was one of the brave ones. Like, oh, I said, I got to go to Grant's tomb. I got to go to Grant's tomb. I said, all right, James, let's go. So we went and I remember stepping over beer cans and I remember graffiti and, you know, we went into the tomb, but I didn't feel too safe when I was mm -hmm. there, put it that way. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, I almost wish my parents did take me there so I could have seen it firsthand. But the newspaper reports at the time were just like reporters were stumbling over each other to be to be the most lurid in reporting about it. Uh, they write about the whiskey bottles and the crack vials and the graffiti and the stench because there wasn't any public restroom around there. And you had homeless people that were using the tomb as shelter and the busted out, burnt out cars that had littered all of New York City in the 70s, but especially in that area outside of Harlem, it was really, it was a pretty dangerous site, like you said, it, uh, it really wasn't safe. And then kind of like the happy ending of the story is that in the mid 90s, things began to change. And I write about this individual, Frank Scatoro, who was probably done more in all of the of the places that I've researched about the presidents and I've researched hundreds in writing my book and in other areas of interest. I've never seen a private individual do so much to save a presidential site from almost certain doom. Because there was congressional efforts really that were led by politicians in Illinois to relocate the body of Grant and his wife, Julia, to Illinois, which is where he lived, it was one of the sites that Grant had mentioned for burial. Because New York City and the National Park Service was doing such a poor job in caring for it. So it was very possible that Grant's tomb might no longer be in New York City if it wasn't for Frank Scatoro. And he was just a young college student that was always interested in the presidency, it was always fascinated with Grant as well. And he had grown up at the time when Grant's reputation, very few people really appreciated Grant, but he did. And he just happened to, to go to Columbia Law School almost by providence because he, because he didn't go for the fact that it was near Grant's tomb, but obviously he started to gravitate towards the location. I won't go through the whole story of it. You can read the book, but it's just, if it wasn't for Frank Scatoro and this one person's efforts, very likely Grant's tomb would have a much different history than it does now. And as Grant's tomb started to rebound, so did Grant's reputation. When Grant's tomb was maybe close to rock bottom in the early 1990s, the presidential rankings, which are pretty subjective and they're really kind of almost tell more about the current time than it does about the presidents when they had served. But at that point in the early 1990s, Grant was four from the bottom. The only ones that were worse were Warren G. Harding, Andrew Johnson, and James Buchanan. So he's really like they're in the basement of the presidents. But now, just maybe last week, C-SPAN came out with their most recent presidential rankings, and Grant's number 20. 
he had gone from basically rock bottom to now number 20. He's better than half of the presidents. So it's just fascinating, the parallels with Grant's reputation and Grant's tomb. I did read about his new elevated ranking. I myself am becoming even more of a fan of Ulysses S. Grant. I was always very interested in Civil War history. But when I saw that, I was very happy because after reading your book as well and hearing about his story and his courageous life and at the end of his life, I just felt like this man deserves a better ranking in history. So I read the C-SPAN report. And I thought that was good. I was very happy about that. If we were to go to Grant's tomb right now, would it be a good experience? It would be a very good experience. Yeah. I mean, it really is. It's almost like an American secular cathedral that you're stepping into because it's really just, just a magnificent site, the inside and outside. It's a much safer area, obviously, than it was during its dark times during that 30 year stretch. And it's really, again, is a site that you can really just gain an appreciation for just this, uh, this magnificent individual, this really, this heroic individual in American history. So it's definitely worth visiting. One thing that I found too, that is really just so rewarding for me is just hearing from folks that have read the book and people just have contacted me either from my website or on social media and just told me how much they enjoyed the book. And now they've either gone to visit the site or they've put it on their list to go visit Grant's tomb now that they know the full history of it. Well, I'm going back and I don't have to worry about tripping over beer cans. This time. Yep. <laughs> It'd be a much different experience than it was back in the 70s. Yeah. Well, thank you for that book because it, it really tells an amazing story of how that tomb was built and all the people involved in it. And uh, as far as I think the important thing is how even one person can make a huge difference in a lot of things. They have the passion for it. So, yep. And uh, I also want to mention, you know what I mentioned, Frank Scatoro. What I like to think is that Frank was really the brains of the effort, but I don't know if he could have gotten it done without one other individual. And that is, is Grant's great-great-grandson, Ulysses Grant Dietz. And I kind of look at, at Frank as the brains and, and, uh, and Ulysses as the heart. Because, uh, and not to say that Ulysses doesn't have brains, but Frank was a very passionate and dedicated and concerned citizen. But he's a little easier to dismiss than a family member. Now you had, uh, so in the 1990s, they really joined forces. And uh, Ulysses Grant Dietz, now he's not just talking about a president and a Civil War hero. He's talking about his great-great-grandfather and great-great-grandmother. So I got to interview both individuals for my book. And one thing that Ulysses did is he constantly reminded me, one, that I was writing about an actual person. I wasn't just writing about the guy on the $50 bill or the guy that I read about in my history books. I was writing about a flesh and blood individual. But also, there's two people in Grant's tomb. His great-great-grandmother as well, too. Uh, so it really, I got so much from interviewing both of those of those individuals from my book, but it really helped me gain perspective that I was writing about an actual person, two actual people. Definitely, definitely. Thank you for that, mm -hmm. Lewis. I wanna go on now to a couple of hypothetical questions. The first one, if you were in a battle and in a foxhole with one of the presidents, which one would it be and why? You know, this is, uh, 
there's there's a couple of them that come to mind. If I can only choose one, it's tough. Uh, Andrew Jackson and Teddy Roosevelt both died with bullets in their bodies. <laughs> so they're pretty tough dudes. I think if I was in a battle, I'd want them on my side. Uh, so, <laughs> uh, but, you know, both survived assassination attempts. Andrew Jackson ended up beating up the guy that tried to assassinate him with his cane. So, you know what? Maybe for that regard, I'll take Andrew Jackson. But you know what? I think I do fine with either one of those individuals in a foxhole with me. They might take the bullet for you, in other words. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they wouldn't even flinch. <laughs> and then they'd beat the person with their stick or their cane. <laughs> Two tough dudes. <laughs> All right. Here's another one for you. If you could go out to lunch with one of the presidents, which one would you choose? And what question would you most want answered by that president? Hmm. Another really good question. Maybe, you know, one of the ones that pops into my mind is Grant. I'd love to sit down and talk to Grant. And I, you know what, I'd love to put Grant in a time machine and ask him, what do you think about your tomb? Because Grant was a very humble individual. And uh, Grant wasn't into the pomp and circumstance and ceremony of being a Civil War general or being president. So I'm always curious about what he'd think about Grant's tomb. And there was even people writing at the time that this wasn't really what Grant wanted. This is what the public wanted. So Maybe Grant, but another one that pops into my mind, and I know I'm answering your give me one president with multiple presidents. That's okay. Uh, but <laughs> uh, just one of my favorite presidents uh, and one of the most inspiring presidents to me is Franklin Roosevelt. When I think about what he went through personally and with polio and the time that he served, where he was, he was a leader during the Great Depression. He was a leader during World War II. And one thing he was known for was being so inspirational and approachable and optimistic. I just, you know, I'd love to just talk to him about that and just ask him, hey, was there ever a time when maybe you were losing confidence and you weren't that optimistic? Uh, because he just, he was just famous for that grin and that uplifting spirit. Uh, so I just, yeah, I just love to talk to him about being president at, uh, and about that optimism, where that came from. But one thing with the presidents, I always think I'd love to just like be in a giant poker game with all the presidents and just like, just to get to talk to them, not as being presidents, but get to like what they were really like. Like what was George Washington really like? If you can sit down like that, that always, they always talk about the president you want to have a beer with. Uh, but it would be great just to really find out what these people were like, especially like the further back when they get, uh, almost more like myth than men. But I'll give the answer FDR. FDR. With your research that you've done, do you feel a little closer to like you've actually had coffee with some of them? You know, I do with Grant. And I know that we're on audio here, but we're looking at each other. I've got a beard now. I didn't have this beard last year. So part of it was with COVID, but also I almost feel like I was like starting to channel Grant. But it definitely uh, just because in writing about Grant's tomb, I had to, to research so much about Grant because it really is, it's, it's a story of people too, not just the building, uh, the actual tomb. But just, yeah, the more that I, that I read about Grant, the more that I found appealing about Grant, and I just really felt closer to him, and especially in meeting his great-great-grandson. That really just kind of made a connection to me with Grant that I don't think I would have been able uh, I would have been able to have had not I met him. Ulysses Grant Dietz is a great guy. 
actually. I have done a podcast interview with him and he tells a great story and he's an amazing guy. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I had the opportunity to speak with him several times on the phone and then we just got to meet pretty recently out in Missouri. We were both out there, uh, out there for this very interesting festival. So we got to meet in person and it was just terrific to spend time with him. So Lewis, I want to ask you, what's next? What are your next plans? Do you have a book mm-hmm. on your heart? I'm kind of like, usually after I finish a book, I spend a little time fishing for the next book. Uh, so I'm kind of like in that process now where I've, a couple of different things have piqued my interest, but what's got my interest right now and what I'm focusing on and what I anticipate being my next book is that what I've discovered is that I'm not quite ready to leave Grant yet. And it's just, he has uh, almost like Teddy Roosevelt. He has so many different chapters to his life that I feel are yet are underexplored or unexplored. So I'm still spending time with Grant and I'm anticipating that my next book will be another interesting story of Grant's life. Well, I'm looking forward to that one, certainly. Let me ask you this, Lewis, what is your overarching goal as an historian and author? The one thing I hope is that my passion for the topic comes out in my writing. Uh, And I've had people tell me that, yeah, from reading the book, I can tell how much you loved writing the book. Uh, So I kind of hope that comes out and that's part of who I am uh, as an historian. Uh, Also, if I can inspire people to want to learn more about history. And I've had people tell me that, that from reading my books, I've wanted to learn more about history or I've wanted to go visit different, uh, different presidential sites or historic sites. So presidential sites were my gateway into history. And if, if there's some individuals that kind of find my books to be their gateway into history, uh, I think I'd be a very happy man if that's part of, of my legacy as an historian. Well, Lewis, I wish you the very best because I'm going to read your other two books, but the book on Grant's tomb, certainly it's sort of, uh, if I weren't already a big history lover, I would become one because I could Mm. see the passion in your writing, the attention to detail, the attention to the times that the, the people were in and the struggles to raise money and the the conditions around the tomb and all the personalities involved. It was just so inspiring and enjoyable and I couldn't stop listening to it until I was done. So thank you for that. And I want to, I want to just thank you very much for being on our podcast and I wish you very, very best in all that you do, your future endeavors. And we're looking forward to your next book. Well, thank you very much, James. I really enjoyed this conversation. Have a great day, Lewis. Same to you. Thank you very much. So, for all of our listeners, keep discovering and telling stories that inspire you and others. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Your History, Your Story. Please subscribe, share, and check out our website at yourhistoryyourstory.com for episode notes and bonus content. We'd love to hear from you if you have any questions, comments, or a story to tell. Be well and God bless.